0: Hello and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. We have been lighting candles each week to draw our attention back to the lessons of Advent. Lighting candles is a simple but profound practice as it signifies light in the darkest places. We lit the candle of hope, reminding us of our hope in the one to come, and we lit the candle of joy as a reminder that Jesus alone is the way to unimaginable and everlasting joy. Last week, we lit the candle of peace, reminding us to imagine new ways of living in the peace of Jesus. And today, we light the candle of love, reminding us of the great love that the Father has for us, reminding us that his stance toward us is single and relentless. Relentless, He loves us. We have two scripture readings today. Our first comes from Luke 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, "'Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you.' Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. "'Don't be afraid, Mary,' the angel told her, "'for you have found favor with God. "'You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. "'He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. "'The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David.' And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the gospel of Christ. Our second reading comes from Galatians 4, 4-6. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts prompting us all to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we have learned to love from being loved by you. And so today, let us enact that love. Let us live that love. We know that what the world needs now is more love. We need to remember how much you love each one of us, and we must share that love with others. Amen. Thank you, guys. I feel like we should clap for people when they do something up front. It's very scary and brave. Ellen Hill showed up to church today. She was not going to come because we made her do something up front. Um, okay, do you have uh, moments in your life uh, where something, maybe you thought one thing for, I don't know, a long time, and then something, I don't know, something happens, or you somehow wake up to something and it becomes something else? Like those moments in your life where you're like, oh, it was that, Um uh, here's an example. Uh, when I was young, uh, my mom one time um, was picking at her teeth, like in between these two bottom teeth. And she was picking at it. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm just getting my chicken. And um, so I thought that that little piece of gum in between your two bottom teeth was called your chicken. And it, I'm not, it was not until, and I was a grown married woman then I looked at Daniel one day, and he was picking at the same spot. And I said, oh, you're picking at your chicken? <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and I said, are you picking at your chicken? And as it came out the second time is when I realized my mom just had a piece of chicken <laughs> caught, between, <laughs> caught between her teeth. That was all it was. <laughs> um, here's another one. Um, <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever dipped a, a Wendy's french fry in a Wendy's frosty? Anyone, right? Okay, Uh, when I was a teenager, my lifelong friend, Justin Cook, uh, who we know and love, told me that the reason why Wendy's French fries and Wendy's Frosties were so good together was because Frosties were made out of potatoes, okay? And I remember hearing this come out of my mouth when I was teaching my children how to dip their, the very healthy life choice of dipping their French fries into their Frosties. See me for all of your children's dietary needs, um, and I heard myself say, oh, do you want to know why that's so good? It's because Frosties are made out of potatoes. <laughs> no. no, they're not. And I was writing this for today, and then I got very insecure, and I had to Google it just to double-check <laughs> that Frosties were not made out of potatoes and they're not. Uh, Some of you are waking up to that in this moment right now. Um, But good news I felt less alone because when you google uh, are Frosties made out of the first thing that comes up is potatoes which is hysterical. Um, Last one and this is to get him back for telling me that Frosties were made out of potatoes when I was in college (laughs) And another friend, we're at my parents' house, and we were, we we're moving a dresser. And we're moving this dresser, helping them move this dresser. And Justin says, I wonder what was so special about Chester? And we were like, who's Chester? You know, like he was just out of nowhere, you know. We're like, who's Chester? And he was like, Chester. And we're like, uh, is that like your uncle? I mean, I don't know who this is. And he said, you know, Chester, that the drawers are named after. And we like, when he said Chester drawers. (laughs) And we were like, oh, buddy, it's chest of drawers. He argued (laughs) and and stood stood his ground. We all have moments. like this, Uh, moments in our life where we wake up to something new. To me, that's part of the beauty of life is that we're always waking up uh, to something new. As a very curious person, this makes life very exciting uh, to me. The idea that I thought something was one thing and then it became something different. Sometimes I'll have people ask me theological questions and my answer is always like, well today I think, because five years ago I thought something else and five years in the future I might." you know, we just wake up up uh, to new things. And, and for me, I had one of those moments writing this sermon, um, just like a, oh, kind of moment. Um, it, it was like a light switch came on. I, I started writing this sermon, I actually wrote it before, started writing it before any of the other Advent sermons, before I had even told Chad I was going to steal this sermon from him, because I was so excited to uh, talk about Love. And then as I was writing just this week, this light switch came on. I felt like I woke up to something new uh, and different than how I had uh, maybe understood things before. Um, Since, I don't know, Thanksgiving, I've been writing a sermon about how God is love because God is love. Uh, It's one of the first verses I memorized, 1 John 4. Uh, It actually says it twice. I think it's 8 and 17. God is love. And I was listening um, to something my Monday morning pastor, uh, Adam Russell, on Monday mornings, I listen to sermons. I don't, I don't listen to myself, shockingly. Um, I tried to once. I sound like Minnie Mouse. I can't handle it. Sorry to all of you who have to listen to my voice. Um, but uh, so I listened to this guy, Adam Russell. Uh, he's a vineyard pastor in Kentucky. And I was listening to something that he said years ago about love. And um, he said this. He said, if God is love then love isn't something God possesses. It's the very essence of his being. And I don't know why, but that hit me brand new. Like this new and fresh idea uh, that love is not just something that God has or something that God gives. It is what he is. God is love. And this may sound really uh, simple to you, but as I've spent the last few days sitting in this idea, um, it has started to like unfold and unpack some of the things that, that I think about the nature and character of God. like if God doesn't uh, just have love but is love, then love is the primary way that God relates to the world. If that's true, if love is the primary way that God relates to the world, then all of the things that we know of God, his goodness, his mercy, his sovereignty, his holiness, his judgment, his peace, all of these things become expressions of love. It means that uh, love leads every single thing, not the other way around. For example... Uh, if this is true, then this means we aren't judged by God in order to be loved, that it's opposite. We are loved by God, and then his judgment on evil is an expression of that love that he has for us. It means that love is the means. Love is the carrier agent, and love is the desired result, always. If love is the very essence of God, then my understanding or lack of understanding of that must have significant implications in my life and my faith and my understanding of how I see God and how God sees me. And so I found myself uh, camping out for the last few days uh, in the verse I memorized so young. I'd already picked our candle verses like weeks ago, but I just kept camping out in this one in 1 John 4. Taylor, I think we have a slide for it. I want to read it to you out of the message version this morning. It's 1 John 4, 17 and 18. It says this, God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house. It becomes at home and mature in us so that we're worry-free on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. There is no room for in love for fear. For well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is not one yet fully formed in love. I have become... In like a new and fresh way, very interested this week in what it looks like to be fully formed in love. For love to take up permanent residence in my being. Where the God who doesn't just give love uh, but is love lives in us and we live in him where love has the run of my house becoming at home uh, within us and growing us and maturing us out of the fear that God hasn't picked us or God is mad at us or, worst of all, worse, that God has forgotten us. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, says that the primary reason we exist is to be loved by God and to allow divine love to be pleased to rest in us. I think we think of it differently. The first time I I read this quote, I totally disagreed with it. I'm like, no, uh, we exist to love God. And C.S. Lewis says, we do exist to love God. But the primary reason we were made, if God is love, is uh, to be loved by him and to allow his love uh, to uh, be pleased to rest on us. Pleased to rest on us. I think that's beautiful, right? That our whole lives would be about allowing God's pleasure of loving us, the rest of God's love uh, on us. I think it's so beautiful. But one of the things that I realized uh, this week is that if I'm really, really honest with you, I, I don't know how to be loved like that. I don't know how to be loved like that. I'm not sure that I know how to be loved from a place of delight and a place of rest. It's not that I don't think God loves me. I do. I really think he loves me. I just also believe that loving me probably makes him a little anxious and a little nervous and a little unsettled, particularly when I have a microphone. (laughs) I've said uh, before um, that I am very comfortable with God loving some future version of me, the one that has it a little bit more together than today. Uh, the future version of me that doesn't yell at her kids while she's writing a sermon. The future version of me who doesn't say too many bowling words. The future version of me who has the perfect balance of like self care and serving, and and who knows what frosties are made of. I am great with the love of God being pleased to rest on the future version of me that has it all together. But I very much struggle with the love of God resting and residing in a non-anxious way on the current version of me. Honestly, I can't rest in the current version of me. How could I expect anyone else to? And so I just feel like I'm on this mission uh, in life. Our our, um, our call to worship says, let's look for the messengers. And I keep thinking of that. I'm on this mission in life right now to look for clues as to what it looks like to live out what 1 John 4 says of being fully formed in love. And so I want to tell you two stories that for me uh, have been clues this week that I just feel like the Holy Spirit has like bubbled up in me of two clues of what it might look like uh, in someone else's life um, to be fully formed in love. Uh, the first is this. Uh, there's a that I am crazy about uh, that I quote almost every single week during communion named Brennan Manning Um, and he wrote uh, more than once actually that uh, his deepest awareness of himself is that he is deeply loved by Jesus and that he has done nothing to earn or deserve this my deepest awareness of myself the most this is what he writes the most true thing about me is that I'm deeply loved by God and so as I read that this week, I was like, there's a clue of someone who, who's living a like, fully formed life of love. Someone with a permanent residence of love in their life. This is the same guy that said my favorite quote of all time. I, again, I say it all the time. God is not moody or capricious. He knows no season of change. He has one single and relentless stance towards you. He loves you. This man writes like a man whose life has been fully formed by love. Uh, Before Brendan Manning died, he died about 10 years ago. um, He he had written loads of books, and um, he spent decades traveling and speaking and pastoring all over the country and uh, the world. Uh, But before he died, he wrote a book that was not like any of his other books. Um, It is a heartbreaking memoir about his life called All Is Grace. And the Christian media hated it. You can Google it today. I did it this week. Uh, There is still a headline that calls this book the unfortunate legacy of Brennan Manning. The Christian world hated this book. And here's why. It is hauntingly honest. Like, you feel like, oh, no, you should put your clothes back on, sir. It is hauntingly honest. It's essentially his coming clean book. And he begins the book, this is how vulnerable it is. He begins the book with a warning so that you don't, you're not shocked when you read it. And I just want to read you his warning. His warning is this. He says, warning, colon, my life has been anything but a straight shot, more like a crooked path filled with thorns and crows and vodka. Prone to wonder? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest, husband, then an ex-husband. I amazed crowds one night and lied to my friends the next. I was drunk for years, sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter all before the waitress even brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday, and if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. That's how it starts. And then throughout the book, he gets more honest. He gets honest about a lot of things he wasn't always honest about. He talks about getting up in front of churches and talking about being sober and then leaving and going to the hotel bar being very much not sober. He talks about stories he told. He says, do you remember this one story where I was the hero? It didn't happen like that, and I wasn't the hero. Another time, uh, at least once, he says, remember that story that I told about that thing that happened to me? It didn't happen like that because it didn't happen. I made it up. It's a fake story. This book is a book of haunting vulnerability. And so many times as I read it, I thought, this man is crazy to tell us all of these things. Because to write a book like that, to peel back the curtain of your life in that kind of way, you would have to be nuts or loved. First John 14 says, Well-formed love banishes the fear of judgment. And this book is full of words from a man who had been defined by being loved by God. And so he put it all out there. At the end of the book, the very last words, he quotes what we just read from 1 John 4. And then he writes this. These are the last words that Brennan Manning ever published. He says this, Abba. He calls God Abba every single time, Daddy. He says, Abba's love cannot be comprehended. I'll say it again. Abba's love cannot be comprehended. He died shortly after the book came out. And so these words, Abba's love cannot be comprehended, act like a seal over his life. A seal over his life of the incomprehensible love of God that had always defined him and had nothing to do with his earning or deserving. He proved it in the last book. He didn't earn it anyway. The same is true for us. The incomprehensible love of God, who is love, is glad to rest on us and it has nothing to do with what we have done to earn it. And it has nothing to do with any chance of losing it. Here's the thing. I don't ever want to belittle holiness and righteousness and action uh, with Jesus. I believe that these things are absolutely crucial elements of following Jesus. Uh, They matter. The kingdom of God is full of invitation to participate to us. I believe this with every part of me. And as much as I believe that, and I do... Holiness matters. What we do matters. I believe this. I also believe that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love and there is nothing we can do to lose God's love. What we do matters, but it does not matter in a way that allows us to earn. It matters because it is an expression of the love of God resting on our life. When we, uh, this fall, we spent months and months talking about uh, loving our neighbor, and we're going to do that very regularly around here. It's, it's our mission statement, that we believe that we exist to join God in the renewal of all things by walking with Jesus and loving our neighbor. We believe in an active faith in this place, but learning to love our neighbor, it, it doesn't make us worthy of God's love. It doesn't help us earn more of God's love. You know what it does? It wakes us up to more of the presence of love that already exists with us. It wakes us up. It gives us more access to the love that is already pleased to rest within us. If God doesn't just have love, but if he is love, then love is the very beginning. It is not something we have to earn in the end. If God is love, then love is something we have in the beginning. It is not something we have to earn in the end. Our whole life with Christ is about opening ourselves up uh, to, for love to take up residence and make its home within us, to mature us, to set us free by changing our mind about where joy comes from and hope comes from and security is found and pleasure is found. If God is love, then love, it can't be earned. It can only be accepted. One more story. Um, when my boys, uh, came on Graham, when they were in kindergarten, uh, they had a star chart at their school. It's like, do you know what these are, like a behavior chart? I think every school has some sort of thing. It's a chart that measures behavior. One star is the worst. Five stars is the best. Are you kind of with me? Behavior charts? Okay. Um, the way it worked at their school is that every single kid starts on a three, and you can move up or down throughout the day depending on uh, how your day goes. Um, again, lots of school systems have something like this and one day we're driving to school and uh, Graham starts talking about a star chart um, and at the time Graham's wonderful and very amazing teacher Miss Lawrence was on maternity leave and so he had an interim substitute teacher while she was having her baby. We'll call her Miss B uh, and Miss B had had been in Graham's class. <laughs> I forgot people teach here. Um, <laughs> Maybe that's not what her name starts with. Miss um, B had been in Graham's class, and, um, and every day that she had been in this class, he had ended on a one-star or a two-star. And in kindergarten terms, that is bad. Okay? It's bad. And so Graham, he was very much missing the mercy of Miss Lawrence, his amazing teacher who offered chances for every kid to move up their star all day long. But for three weeks under uh, the tutelage of Miss B, Graham had not moved his star up a single time, not once. In 15 days, his new teacher had not found a single thing worthy of Graham moving his star up. And he was struggling. And as he talked about it, I saw, I'm looking at my rearview mirror, and I see tears start to form uh, in his eyes. And at one point, he begged me not to go to school, which is not him. It just wasn't him. And, and, um, and as we got closer to school, he started to really cry, and he asked this heartbreaking question. He said, Mom, will you still love me if I'm a one star? It's like, oh. And then he starts talking about how he's trying to impress Miss B. And he says, sometimes I take a piece of paper and I tear it up into little pieces and I throw it on the ground. And then I pick it up, hoping she'll catch me picking up the pieces of paper so that I can move my star up. And then he said this. He said, all anybody sees when they look at me is a one star. And then tears start forming in my eyes, of course. And I try to assure him that when I look at him, I see so many things. I see so many things. I see a little boy who loves to build traps in every room and loves babies and makes everybody feel at home and dances at the craziest times. And I'm like, I see this, I see this. And, and, and none of the things that I see are one star. And, and as I'm listening, listening things I, I love about him, um, I, I tell him, when I look at you, I never see one star. I see my boy. My boy. But he didn't perk up. He just put his head down. And when he finally looked back up, he asked the question that I think humanity has been asking since the Garden of Eden. He looked at me through the rearview mirror and he said, do you think when God looks at me, all he sees is one star? That's the question, isn't it? That's the question. There are. A whole lot of things, I think, that stand between us and God. Questions of theology and faith and doubt and logic and suffering. But I wonder if this one, if this question is the biggest hurdle we have between us and God's love. I think if we're very honest, and if we take a very honest look at our lives, so many of us are living terrified that God sees us as a one star, that God sees us as someone who gets it wrong more than they get it right. As someone who, uh, as God sees us through the lens, that he has to see us through the lens of a warning label. This person is an ex-priest, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, a liar, a coward, a drunk, a thief. We wonder if when he sees us, all he sees is someone who doesn't go to church as much as they should or give away as much money as they should or who uses bowling words a bit more than they should. I've used that twice. There must be a problem. Um, We wonder if when he looks at us, he sees our selfish and our numbing and our afraid and our doubt and our secrets and our lies and our infidelities and our addictions. If when he looks at us, he sees one star. Do not recommend. I want to quote the ex-priest, ex-husband, drunk himself, Brennan Manning, one more time. He says this. He says, the plea of Jesus to his people is come now, wounded, wounded frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. I will love you as you are, not as you should be, because you are never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? With all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus loves you? Not just the person next to you, not just the church, not just the world, but that he loves you. Beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, or limit. No matter what has gone down, he cannot stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. This is the message of Advent, that when God looks at you, he absolutely 100% sees all of the things that you're afraid he sees Merry Christmas. (laughs) But he sees them all through his presence. And he sees them all through the person of Jesus Christ. And so, the single stance of the God who made you is that when he looks at you, he sees someone who, above and before anything else, is radically loved by God. How do we know? How do we prove that? The girls read it in our scripture from uh, Paul. but But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Daddy, Father, now. You are no longer a slave, but God's own child. The band's going to come up, and we're going to take a breath. It's a rhythm of ours every week uh, at the Vineyard uh, to do a Selah, and this feels like the right time uh, to do it. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a breath. Um, I'm going to pray for us. There will be some scripture on the screen, and we're going to do similar to what Chad invited us to last week. I, I just believe that uh, the thing the Holy Spirit wants to do in our church in this Advent season is just baptize us in a deeper way to the love of God. Uh, when Graham asked me that question, uh, that day when God looks at me, does he only see a one star? Uh, I remember where we were. We were right by the the pool parking lot and I whipped my car in unsafely and I slam on the brakes and I put it in park and I turn around and I looked my boy in the eyes and I said something that I believe with everything in me for him but I have spent a lifetime trying to believe for myself and I looked him in the eyes and I said Graham no way when God looks at you he doesn't see any stars at all when God looks at you all he sees is mine mine the same is true for you today and me If I can dare to believe it. So here's what I want you to do. Close your eyes. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or do anything like that. Close your eyes. And allow this to take up residence in you. Allow this to make its home in you. You may feel like the world has offered you one star at every turn. But when the God who made you looks at you, he doesn't see stars at all. What he sees is Not the future you, the current you. To the today years old you. He says, you are my boy. You are my girl. You are my child. Mine. So Spirit, we ask you to come. We believe you're here. Will you wake us up to your presence in this room And as we wake up to that present, will you baptize us in the love of the Father for us? We believe that the whole point of this is that you are making us more free. And so we ask you for more of your love to set us free. That your love would uh, change our mind about what fear is. That your love would change our mind about what hope is. That your love would change our mind about what pleasure is security is, and safety is. We come and fall. And when every person in this room walk out of this door, having the audacity and the courage to define themselves as one radically loved by you, in the morning sun and the evening rain, your name is